Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. All right, welcome back to Deconstructed. I'm Ryan Grimm, and today we're going to be talking about the border. It's a huge issue here in Washington. I've been predicting for months that nothing is going to come from this because nobody really has uh, incentives to get it done. Or I should say, Republicans don't really have incentives to get it done. They would much rather continue to have Biden talk about a crisis. He used the word crisis this week. Talk about a crisis on the border, uh, run against that crisis, and then maybe do something, maybe not do something when they take power, but power being the end goal there. Uh, Donald Trump conveyed as much two Republican senators, and Mitch McConnell then conveyed it to uh, his Republican conference that, look, we don't actually want to fix this quote unquote problem. So I'm joined today by uh, John Washington, uh, who's the author of the new book, which is out on Tuesday. You can pre-order it now. It's called The Case for Open Borders. And that's why I kind of put problem in quotes there, because I personally understand that as a political matter in this political moment, uh, it's pretty untenable to be arguing in the mainstream for open borders. On the other hand, open borders are basically what we had all throughout the 19th century. Europe has open borders. You can just drive right from France to Spain. Uh, you can drive from Poland all the way to France, and it doesn't really seem to cause them a whole lot of problems. But setting all that aside for our later conversation uh, with author John Washington, John, I wanted to first ask you about what you make of the kind of facets of the deal that have been leaked into the press. Now, I call it a deal. It's still in negotiations, and I don't think it actually will become law for the reasons I said, but we have gotten some some nuggets of you know, what Democrats are willing to agree to. And any any of it jump out at you as particularly uh, revealing? Thanks for having me, Ryan. Um, you know, you, you mentioned the lack of incentives for the Republicans. I think there's sort of a lack of incentive for the Democrats as well. I mean, they, they've, they're in a corner on this. The only way that they have been trying to get out of the situation at the border is to implement further crackdowns, which is revealing in that they are playing politics with this. They are trying to appease the Republicans, appease the right in order to gain some political points. And this is something that we have seen done repeatedly over from administration to administration. Some of the more specific facets of this that have been leaked or have been, um, that, are, that are allegedly on the table right now, including things like uh, Biden has said that he would shut the border down, um, whatever that exactly means, as if there's an on-off switch for a border, or that he could implement something like a rehash of the Title 42 authority, which he had just less than a year ago, he used extensively, he used it even more than Trump. Um, just a little bit of background on that, Title 42 is an 80-year-old public health authority that allows the executive branch to effectively push people back across the border as soon as they come over. Just under 3 million people were pushed back across the border from early 2020 until uh, last spring. And one of the really notable things here is that that didn't work. It didn't work to stop people from crossing the border. In fact, after Title 42 was implemented, more people started crossing the border. A lot of them were repeat crossings, but a lot of them were individual uh, first-time crossings as well. 
and and here we see this this trap or this this cycle of thinking that deterrence is going to work to stop people from crossing the border. And Title Forty Two is one example. Uh, we go back just a couple years earlier to an even more draconian policy, the family separation policy or the um, zero tolerance policy implemented under the Trump administration, and that is where we saw families separated, kids taken out of their parents' arms. Um, a lot of the parents got deported, detained. The kids were shipped elsewhere in the United States. One of the most inhumane policies we've seen on the border in a long time. And you would think, if you're following the logic of deterrence might work on the border, that that would stop people from coming. But we saw in the months immediately following that policy, even after it ended, that more and more families were coming to the border. So that didn't deter people from coming. That didn't deter people from trying to find some sense of safety or reunite with other family members or economic security or whatever the underlying motivations are. And we we could go back and back and back and just go administration by administration and see that crackdowns don't work in stopping crossings. What they do do is they force people into more precarious situations. That is the outer reaches of the desert, to dangerous river fjordings, and people suffer, drowned, die of heat, environmental exposure, and you know it, it just implements more suffering rather than actually stops people from crossing. Yeah, you've got a cool appendix uh, to your book called 21 Arguments uh, for Open Borders. And I wanted to you know run through a couple of those uh, with you. And I'll, I'll try to I'll see what a good job I can do kind of arguing back at you, even though I don't necessarily disagree with you. See if I can pull that off. Um, but let's start uh, with I, number seven is the one that has always been the most interesting to me, where you say open borders doesn't mean a rush to migrate because the running assumption among a lot of Americans is that everybody wants to be in America, everyone around the world, all 9 billion people. And then if you just gave everyone a green card and a plane ticket, that Tomorrow, you'd have all 9 billion people on the planet here within the borders of the United States, and we'd have social collapse immediately. You've actually got some interesting research on this. To me, that never scanned because most people like the place that they grew up. It's where they're comfortable. It's where their family is. It's where their friends are. It's what they know. But you've dug in a little deeper on that. So what what did you find on this question of mass migration being sparked by an open border policy? Well, I want to reframe two things here really quick. One is when people talk open borders, I don't think folks mean a green card necessarily right away or a plane ticket. And the reason I'm, I'm harping on that for a second is because there's been so many claims about current asylum seekers getting gift cards, getting free plane tickets. And that's just not the case. Um, $5,000 is one of, the, one of the myths kind of circulating on the right. Just get you get that you just get like a card with five thousand right. dollars on. Completely it. false. I, I, I'm in Arizona. We have um, one of our Senate candidates here, Mark Lamb, who claims to have knowledge of this happening, and um, it's just not true. That that's, that's that's not happening. No one is getting plane tickets or vouchers for anything um, who are crossing the border. But the other reframe I want to do is something that I think a lot of folks in the United States see this as an issue that affects uniquely the United States, and. The current migration problem, and, and I agree that it's a problem, is not a United States problem. It's not an American problem. It's a regional problem, and it's a global problem. And if you, if you think about it in just where people are going currently, 
a lot of people are coming to the United States. A lot of people have always come to the United States. Um, we can get into some numbers on that in a second. I think that's really important work to do as well. But look at, for example, the number of Venezuelans and the number of Nicaraguans who have resettled in neighboring countries compared to how many have come to the United States. There are approaching 3 million Venezuelans in Colombia right now. And over the past 20 some years, the number of Venezuelans who have come to the United States hasn't even topped 1 million. Nicaraguans are largely resettling or maybe temporarily resettling in neighboring Costa Rica. Some of them are coming up through Central America, Mexico, and, and trying to get into the United States as well. There's been a parole program. But people generally stay close to their home countries. This is the same for Africa as well. There's a number of African states who have become receiving countries as you know the term of art for in immigration speak. Gabon, which is a country probably a lot of people never think of and couldn't necessarily point to on a map, has been an enormous receiving country for a lot of African refugees right now. Um, same with Uganda for, for people from other different countries in Africa. Turkey as well for Syrians um, has welcomed far, far more people than some of the neighboring states in Europe that have complained and cried foul for supposedly being overrun. So I think just if you, if you consider where people are going, um, they typically don't want to go far. And th there have been a number of examples of when the border has been effectively open. You mentioned that in the, like the 19th century. There was a lot of immigration in the 19th century of the United States. Something like 50 million Europeans went from different countries in Europe to the United States over a 100-year period, ending in the, the late 19th century. But there are a number of other examples where, you know, I think Puerto Rico is, is, is a telling case. Puerto Ricans can move freely. They're U.S. citizens. They can move to New York, to Miami, to wherever they want to go. And plenty of them have, but not all of them have. And you can look at even some of like the economic differences between the island and different parts of the United States. You think, well, we have higher wages here. We have all these other things that people think would attract migrants and sometimes does, but it doesn't empty out and hasn't emptied out Puerto Rico. And you can go case by case and see that people want to stay where they are. If they can, they will. And, and if they can't, they'll often go to the next easiest place to get to. Of course, there are exceptions to this, and a lot of those exceptions are due to prior relationships. But if you, if you look at the history of colonialism, a lot of the states who have gone in and meddled with these so-called developing nations are now receiving citizens of those same countries where the empires have destabilized, have engaged in conquest, have tried to exploit as much as possible. So there is a connection. And, and so some people will go further than their neighboring states, but it's not inevitability. Migration costs money. It's expensive. And opening the gates doesn't necessarily mean people are going to rush because it costs a lot, both monetarily and emotionally and professionally. Um, they're going to leave behind everything they knew. And folks don't tend to do that. All right, so to push back on that a little bit, uh, you are seeing record numbers of migrants you know, approaching uh, the U.S. border over the last months and year plus. So what does that tell us about you know, how much kind of pressure there is on outward migration and what we might see if you actually did just fully say, you know what, come on in? 
Well, I think it's too early to say if this is just another peak and we're going to drop down into a valley in terms of numbers of migration, or if this is going to be necessarily a steady upward trend. If you look at the big picture, there are right now about 270 million international migrants. Um, That was based on last year's count by the UN. That's about 3.5% of the global population. That number, 3.5%, has held steady for about 100 years. If you look at forced migration, so people who aren't just migrating for economic or family reasons, but are actually forced out of the country, the count topped 110 million last year. And that too is, is about the average of the, the global population. It's a little bit hard to count because the just tabulations weren't done as thoroughly in you know, the mid last century when we started, when we newly defined what a refugee was. I'm going to give you another number, and then I, I, want, I want to get into that, uh, what this means about the outward pressures of migration. The United States, too, there are, there's a little bit less than 15% of all people living in the country are foreign-born. And that number is almost identical to what it was 100 years ago. So, you know, there's a number of things to think through that, that, that might imply that these numbers are going to increase. I mean, climate change is the biggest one of them. Um, Large parts of the world are becoming less habitable because of all the reasons we know and increasingly strong storms, droughts, floods, heat, etc. So we might be in a new era, but I think it's so far a little bit too early to tell. Going back to that, you know, 100-year perspective, and then you can go further than that too. There's something that is true here is that humans are moving and humans have historically moved. That is how humans have always been. And that has been true before the rise of nation states. That has been true before the rise of empires. So I think the question is not how to stop migration, but how do we respond to migration? And if we can think through that, how we want to actually respond to migration, and if we sort of understand the fact that and, you know, we were talking about this earlier about these deterrence policies that don't work. You know, one of the other big things that we've found doesn't work is a wall. Walls have never effectively worked to keep people out. They, you know, deter or just make crossings more deadly. So when we think about responding, I think this to me gets to um, what are commonly called the root causes. So it seems like, well, if we're just going to think about how we're going to settle folks maybe we're not really addressing those root causes. But I think actually, when we think about how we respond to people who are moving, we can elaborate that or extrapolate that into addressing the root causes. Because the root causes really are wrapped up in how we are to other people, how we are to other nations, how we decide to respect our environment or not. And and if if we start thinking about, well, we want to actually respect the humanity of folks who are forced to flee, then we might also be able to carry that approach over to, we might also want to respect people who live in so-called underdeveloped nations and not just exploit them for their, their labor, being able to give them less worker protections or less wages, but we may actually be able to figure out some way to stop the exploitative relationship and allow folks to move or stay as they please. And um, I, I think that thinking that there is an approach that will stop them is actually the first problem with the border crises around the globe right now. 
And when I was when I was growing up, the way that our immigration system seemed to work was that you'd have a lot of seasonal workers, you know, who would kind of cross into the United States, many of them with, you know, actual, you know, work permits and, you know, em- employers, you know, they, they had fields that they were going to and they had other, they had destinations, their families would stay back in, in Mexico or, or wherever else. And then when the seasonal work was done, you know, they would go back home to their family. As the kind of anti-immigration sentiment grew and we created a much tougher, firmer border, it became untenable for a lot of those people to make that journey twice a year up and back. So if the idea was that they would just never come, that was foiled immediately. Instead, they just, you know, sent for their families. And so instead of having, you know, one seasonal worker coming for the season, we now had uh, that worker's entire family, which then leads to some immigration reform and then leads to like, you know, three decades of nothing and just kind of spiraling immigration policy out of control. Right. There are, you know, the closed borders um, or policies towards closing borders have actually been shown to increase migration. And that can be understood in two ways. One is that it sort of traps people who would normally do that sort of seasonal migration or would maybe come and work for a couple of years and then go back. They decide that it's not worth it anymore. It also um, incentivizes people to sort of make the trip before policies that are um, written into law actually are implemented. And we saw this with Brexit. In the year after Brexit, there were more migrants that made it to the UK than the year before Brexit, Hmm. which is ironic. So they passed Brexit on an anti-immigration sentiment, and it actually produced a spike in immigration. Exactly. Um, And, you know, there's another example of this as well. So if you look a, a lot of the border lockdowns at the beginning of the pandemic, the people who were able to migrate freely from Eastern Europe to Spain and Italy, Romanians, for example, some of my family members, they were able to get back. They left and they went back to their home countries. Whereas some of the people who didn't have papers, some of the undocumented populations in those countries decided to stay, that it wasn't going to be worth it to try to leave because they didn't know when they were going to get back in. So there's just a a number of different ways that actually trying to implement lockdowns locks people in or incentivizes a quick rush to get in rather than do what it's supposedly, what they're supposedly trying to do. And and here too, I think it's, it's important to talk about the perversity of thinking that we don't want migrants because especially in the Western world or the global North, we are hugely dependent on migrants. You know, this came into sharp relief during the pandemic, the early days of the pandemic as well, when an enormous percentage of the so-called essential workers were migrants, were the ones who were still out there in the fields, picking food, who were in the hospitals, tending to people who were getting sick and dying of COVID, who were doing all the other sorts of social services. Um, I was in New York at the time, the people who were delivering food when folks were too scared to go out or couldn't go to restaurants. These are migrants. These are people who largely have come to the country recently. And if they were all kicked out or if more people were not allowed in, the economy would collapse. And, And this is something that lawmakers know. But they just use the idea of a border and they, they, they use the fear that they themselves often spark 
as a political tool. And you talk about the 19th century in the in your 21 arguments um, in the back of the book, uh, and, but you also point out that it was a lot more than just the 19th century. You, got, you had some statistics about in 1990, there were something like four border walls or maybe even fewer, like in the entire world. Uh, now there are dozens, scores. I don't remember the exact number. There's a, you, you talked about how you thought that could possibly be representative of the death throes of nationalism. And I'm, I'm curious for you to unpack that a little bit. And then I want to talk about the history, the, what it was like when the border basically was open. Yeah. So, you know, I, here I was leaning on scholar Wendy Brown, who has written about this a lot. Um, also, um, Jacqueline Stevens. And, you know, some of the, the approach they take or the, the way that they understand what's going on with the, the rise of, of bordering, the rise of immigration crackdowns is that, you know, with the rise of globalism, with the increased interconnectivity of the world in the past 30 years, the rise of the internet, also, the downfall of a number of long entrenched institutions like organized religion, people falling back on nationalism as a key component of, of identity. And nationalism is, is, is the basis of, of nation states. So there's this idea that um, we create this state, which is an organized political institution, and then we tie it to this idea of, of a nation, which is a much more ambiguous, almost amoebic concept, where we have this supposed common identity. But a number of people, um, e even before those two scholars I mentioned, um, Benedict Anderson is, is, is one standout, who have described and gone into detail about what nationality really means and, and how it's forged. And it's forged artificially, because, you know, you have as much in common with someone who may be your neighbor, as you have in common with someone who is across a state line, or a, rather a national line. And yet, you're only supposedly in community with the people within your border nation state. So as that seems increasingly and obviously a false construction, you know, look at, I, I live in Arizona, as I already mentioned, um, there's a, a divided city here on our southern border, Nogales, Arizona, and Nogales, Sonora. A lot of people who live in those two cities have family on either side. They have intense familial, cultural, linguistic, culinary, etc. connections. And yet, because of this dividing line, they are not co-nationals. And so you look at someone in, who's living in Nogales, Arizona, and compare them to someone who's living in, say, Seattle or some other city in the country, and they have so much less in common. And yet, we try to create this tie through nationality. And I think that uh, politicians in particular are able to play on those concepts of identity and try to instill fear that this is something that your very identity is going to be lost. But really, you, you understand identity, I think, truly through community ties, through family ties, through who you know and interact with on a daily basis. And though that ha is definitely changing with the rise of the internet, politicians want to try to make sure you maintain those national ties and scare you that they will be broken. And the bordering is one way to do that, saying we're going to maintain who we are as a nation. But, you know, the United States is the most diverse country in the world. And there's been many other, you know, there's there many other uh, very diverse countries as well. But really trying to border off who we are 
doesn't make sense because we're we're so intersectional, polylinguistic, polycultural in many different ways that really trying to draw lines around that would be drawing this like frenetic, scribbled borderline, which 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 doesn't really make any sense. So I, th- I think it's really based on fear, and um, yeah, it, it's increasing. The the number of border walls are every year increasing in length, inc- increasing in number. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. It does feel like that the internet generally, but more specifically, the ease with which kind of video people can share video across borders has really made borders seem less relevant when it comes to you know common common cultures in the video game world i'm i'm too old to really to be playing video games but talking to people who do like they are playing with people who are in korea they're playing with people you know who are in gabon they're playing with people who are in france and they're all playing the same game and there doesn't seem to be like a big they don't see themselves as in distinct communities are all in the the Fortnite community or whatever they're playing at the time. Um, But I'm I'm curious, um, when did the United States kind of start to have an actual immigration policy? Yeah, one other thought about that. So we we do have these cross-cultural ties and think of, you know, you're basically describing open cultural borders right there. People playing Fortnite from Brooklyn to Gabon or whatever. Think of everyone else who has open borders as well. I mean, most people who are citizens of the United States effectively can waltz through the world as if they were completely open borders. And, and that is true also of the wealthy from many other countries in the world. Much of Western Europe could do basically the same. Um, the ultra wealthy in many even um, so-called developing countries can do much the same. The U.S. military. What border stops the U.S. military right now? Maybe a few are contested, but, you know, there's what, 800 bases nearly, American bases spread throughout the world. That reminds me of a moment that I've really never forgotten. A friend of mine, Christian Parenti, and I were down doing reporting um, in in Bolivia, and we were able to tour a Bolivian military base and interview, you know, military figures, and they were going to talk to us about their, the war on drugs and all this. And while we're waiting, there's a couple soldiers there kind of just sitting in the waiting room with us. And one of them says to us, you know, why are you guys allowed to walk around our military base when I'm not even allowed to come into your country? And, and Christian said it's called imperialism. And he kind of nodded along. But that was a moment that always stuck with me because it did seem bizarre to me that, well, like, what am I doing here? Like, why am I able to just wander around here and be welcomed onto this base? I think imperialism is a good answer. Um, I have another one too. I think it's also just definitionally called apartheid. 
you know, there's there's different laws for different people. And when, when you when you zoom out from just within a nation, we are allowed to do things that other people are not. H- how is that fair? Um, like global apartheid. Global apartheid. I mean, it seems like a a silly question or like almost like a a, a juvenile framing. But I think fairness is is actually key here. It's like some people are allowed to do and have the freedoms that others do not. That That is the way that the global border system works right now. Right. Based on where they're born or their ethnicity. We understand that as apartheid inside the borders of a country like South Africa. But when we stretch it out to the entire globe, we say that's just how it is. Right. So you asked about um, the rise of, of federal immigration law. For the first hundred plus years of the existence of the United States, there was no immigration law. You know, there was maybe something like implicit understanding of who would be allowed in based on tradition, based on just common practice, based on the definition of who a citizen could be, which was, you know, white men. There were some state laws that go back actually to before there was a United States that tried to keep you know, poor people out of their states or poor people out of their their towns and cities. And then we really saw the rise of immigration law in the late 19th century with anti-Chinese legislation that barred Chinese people from being allowed into the country. There was some version of these Chinese exclusion acts that were on the books well into the 20th century. It lasted a really long time. Those Laws were based on um, previous like anti-Irish sentiment. Um, and you can see there's sort of this idea, there's almost this like concept of whack-a-mole. The, the, the newest incomers are the ones that are going to be scapegoated, the ones who are going to be said to be un-American, impossible to assimilate. You know, I, I was doing some research about the situation in New York, which, you know, the the crying foul of Mayor Adams and this idea that New York is existentially in peril is is ridiculous and ahistorical. And yet that is the sort of rhetoric that has been used by politicians for a long time. And so going back to the 1850s, when a much larger percentage of new migrants were coming into New York City at the time, people were terrified. They were mostly Germans and Irish, and, and New Yorkers thought that they couldn't handle it. But the you know the, the percentage was it, it was like 30% of the population of New York arrived to New York City in a single year. Right now, it's like 1% or something like that, the the asylum seekers who have come to New York City in the past couple of years. And it is expensive, and it does change things. And there does need to be some, I think, help with resettling. But that New York can't absorb 160,000 people and be actually invigorated by them, I, I by, by that new... Uh, those new incomers, I think, is just completely historical and, uh, you know, betrays the very essence of New York City, which I think also stands in large part for how we can think about the United States as a whole or any other country with immigration. And since your book is called The Case for Open Borders rather than The Case Against Closed Borders, you know, you make the point that there has to be a vision, a positive vision of what it, what what benefits this is going to bring to humanity rather than just a knocking down of you know the arguments against it. So to you, what is what is the vision uh, that makes the case for open borders? Yeah, you know, I grapple with that a lot. You know, I'm not a policymaker. A- as a reporter, you know, what I do is find basically uh, you know malfeasance or or 
major traumas and report on them. And, and I, I, I've documented for years now the problems that voters cause. And so it was a stretch for me to start thinking about the benefits of this hypothetical future of something with open borders, of a world with open borders. But I think it comes down to looking at some examples that are already in, in existence. The United States of America is a good one. Uh, we transit freely from California to Virginia, from Florida to Nebraska or wherever. And it's pretty seamless. People can move wherever they want. There are enormous economic and cultural differences between different places in the United States. And uh, people kind of figure out where they want to settle, where they can settle and, and do so. And it doesn't upend the political system. Um, you mentioned previously people also traveling freely within the Schengen zone in the European Union. And that too, uh, there was a lot of nerves about that, especially as they incorporated some more Eastern European states. But those Western states haven't been overrun, despite you know the claims of, of the Brexiteers or, or, and, and, and now the rise of, of the far right in the Netherlands and, and France and elsewhere. And um, you know, people go back and forth with relative ease and they settle where they want to settle. And, and what incentivizes people to move are open jobs. That's one of the major incentives. And when they're open jobs, it's good that they're filled. There are a lot of open jobs in the United States right now, and, and, and they need filling. And so if they're not open jobs, I think they won't be filled and people won't move as much. So I, I think that this also goes back to your question of well, there won't be a run or will there be a run on the United States border if, if suddenly it was open? It doesn't seem to be because I think people are driven by um, the things we're all driven by is opportunities. And if they're not there, they won't go. So, you know, th there's a number of other free, free migration zones in the world. There's a Nordic passport area. There's a trans Tasmanian area. There's the Central America four region and, and Mercosur in South America. There's so many that we don't think of. Also, there's a couple in Africa where people cross can cross borders easily and expanding it. Uh, I think seems to be a, a, a very doable thing. Um, and that's based on the evidence that we've seen with, as I was just mentioning, uh, the, the, the steady, you know, now past steady expansion of the EU um, or the incorporation of, of new states in the United States. You know, th there, there's a, a good quote that I, I think about a lot, um, Nicholas de Geneva, who's a researcher, and he says, without borders, there is no migration. There's no, only human mobility. And I think he's absolutely right. But What's interesting is that there's human mobility no matter what, that people will move, as I've said before, and the way that we see it and term it and the way that we designate it, whether it's migration or just movement, I, I think is actually less important than people really realize. And one interesting way to think about this, I want to get your take on this thought experiment, would be, so we had the Civil War here in the United States. So imagine that at the end of the Civil War, the union decides that there are going to be borders, like hard borders. And we can take that thought experiment two different directions. One, you're going to put hard borders around all of Mississippi, and every single southern state is going to have a hard border around it. Or you could say it's going to be a hard border at the, at the Mason-Dixon line, uh, and that you can come up with all sorts of justifications for why that would be necessary for the reconstruction of these, these states or, or whatever. Now, when you think about the Great Migration that, 
that happened in the early 20th century. You know, that was a, a movement of individuals, but it was also a political movement. And it was, it was an organized political movement with civil rights leaders, you know, who had fought against Jim Crow uh, for 50 years at this point, saying, we, we are not going to be able to be, defeat Jim Crow um, in the South, and we just need to move. Uh, and there is a process of industrialization going on in the North. There are jobs available to people. The, the largest uh, black newspapers in the North were flooding the South with polemics and advertisements and arguments. At, you know, as the, the, the book, The Warmth of Other Suns, you know, so deftly lays out saying like, look, come up here, come to Los Angeles, come to Chicago, come to New York, come to Milwaukee. It's better. And try if you if you imagine a world in which that wasn't possible where Jim Crow was not able to be overthrown and also the people subject to Jim Crow were not able to leave, you could very easily imagine situations like we've seen in Central and South America rising up, that people organizing together violently and saying, if we're not going to be able, if we, if we can't vote, like if, if we're going to be lynched for trying to vote and we can't leave to make a better life for our families and, and build better communities, we're going to take up arms. Like we outnumber the ruling class here in Mississippi and in an organized militant fashion. And th frankly, there'd be nothing wrong. They would have the right to do that. Would that make the world a better place though? You may just have then cascading cycles of violence for the next, for, for a hundred years with uh, strong men getting replaced by populist leaders then you've got people up in the north who have their own interests who might organize coups down in Mississippi and put in, you know, a leader that they find to be pliant to them, assassinations of leaders. Like you could very easily imagine all of the crises that we've seen in, in Latin America developing in the, in the American South rather than what we got, which is by no means perfect, but a much more kind of organic path toward living together peacefully than we have elsewhere. That's an interesting counterfactual. I think, you know, we can look at examples right now and, and we can just try to ask how this plays out if we try to maintain lockdowns, if we try to immobilize entire populations that are under threat of authoritarian governments, are under threat of devastating climate change. What do we do? H how do we immobilize them? Do we wall them off into slums? Do we try to erect ever higher barriers? And I, I think that is something that we are trying now. And I think what you create there is a political powder keg. When people don't have freedoms and they don't have security and they don't have any economic opportunity, they rise up and they either rise up and they leave or they rise up and they, they try to... Um, remake the societies that they're in. And either way, it's going to be a tumultuous response. So yeah, I think, I think, I think you're exactly right. Um, letting people move and letting people try to find their way out of these untenable situations rather than lock them into it seems to be a pretty obvious approach. Uh, and, and yet, um, you know, I, I don't think folks are seeing it that way and they're or, or not thinking long term and what it would actually mean if somehow you were able to say seal in all the people in some of these Central American states. What does that look like? Just, just morally, what, what, what does that mean? 
when um, we continue to rely on some of these states for fresh produce, for coffee, for apparel, and we're able to somehow sneak those just those goods out with the people who are consigned to dangerous situations who are facing hunger or facing extreme insecurity, political violence, uh, oppression, they're just stuck there. I mean, you know, when, when you just kind of back up for a second and think about it, it makes no moral sense. And it also, going back to your you know hypothetical there, it does seem to imply that there's going to be an explosion. There's, there's going to be a political explosion. And, and what that looks like is going to be probably very ugly. Um, and, and what inevitably also lead to huge outflows of migrants. So how are you going to solve the problem? I mean, it doesn't seem to be the way to do it. Is it just circle people in and, and hope that they figure it out? Uh, the great irony of the Great Migration, of course, as a lot of people know, is that the white elite down there hated it. Like as, as, hor- as horrifying as their treatment was of black people in the South, when black people started leaving, they did everything they could to try to stop that. Because they understood through their racism how essential they were to their economy. And it actually pushed them toward uh, reforms that you don't see for decades afterwards. But they understood it as this, as this massive threat. Now, at the same time, uh, the migrants that were going north were often used by northern industrialists uh, as strike breakers or to undermine the white working class up in the north, which creates then some some uh, serious tensions. And so you always hear this argument that they're going to take our jobs. And obviously, sometimes, like in, in many of those specific cases, they were. But what is your response to people when they say, we can't have open migration because it's going to destroy wages and they're going to take all of our jobs? Well, uh, we have so much evidence that it doesn't do either of those things. There are study after study after study. Let's start with wages. If there is any effect on wages of even huge inflows of migrants, it is minuscule. And it's often actually a positive effect. And one of the, the, the best examples of this, and a lot of people have written about it, is the, the Mariel boat lift of 1980, when I think it was 160-some thousand Cubans landed in Miami in a span of a little bit more than half of a year. And study after study after study, there's been some contending studies, but they've been disproven, has shown that it didn't really affect wages very much. It didn't really affect employment very much either. And, you know, this this idea that they're going to take our jobs, I think, is predicated on this fallacy. It's called the lump of labor fallacy, that there's a set number of jobs in any economy. And there's not. Jobs often create other jobs. When migrants come in, they may um, take an open job and their presence or the presence of them and their family or their their colleagues will create another job. And also often migrants pay into systems like welfare states long before they're able to take any of the, receive any of the benefits. So economically speaking, it's just a really easy argument to make. And, and anyone who actually looks at the data, and, and a lot of people have, you know, I, I quote Wall Street Journal from the 1980s, there was a, a proposal for a constitutional amendment that was five words long is, we shall have open borders. And they were doing it uh, that I know of out of the goodness of their hearts, they were doing it because they realized that economically it made a lot of sense. And you, you see now that, um, you know, serious trained economists will tell you time and again, that actually, 
it's decent for wages, it doesn't really affect unemployment rates, and it's overall just a boon for the economy. There was one study by uh, George Clemens that said it was called something like trillion dollar bills on the sidewalk. And if we had completely open borders throughout the world, the uh, global GDP would balloon, would you know, increase by hundreds of percent. And you know, there's there's a number of different reasons for that, but it just really isn't a threat to the economy in in any way. And you know, we you could drill down into a number of different studies, a number of different ways that that makes sense. But start looking into it, and you see that just any 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 economist you trust will will be on the side of uh, yeah, migrants are good. And I would add on the flip side. Um, for people who this is counterintuitive for, it actually is much easier to find cases where labor shortages cost people wages and cost people jobs. If you think back to uh, the labor shortage after the the pandemic, a lot of restaurants um, had to close. They, they could they could not open, say on a on a Friday night because they couldn't get enough staff to come in either to work the kitchen or to work uh, the front of the house. And so, let's say they had fifteen people and eight of them were able to show up, but eight wasn't enough to run the restaurant. All eight of those are now out of luck. Everybody that's supplying that restaurant is out of luck. And all the all the downstream economic kind of uh, cycling down the drain uh, that that creates. If you look at the Israeli economy right now, they, they have shut off. And it, it'll be fascinating to see studies of this down, down the line because you have such a stark dividing line. Like after October 7th, all workers from Gaza were prevented from working in Israel, which there was, you know, hundreds of thousands of them that did. And even workers from the West Bank were blocked from going into Israel. And it's had a debilitating effect on the Israeli economy as a result. So it's not as if, well, now there are a million, you know, fewer workers coming into the economy. So all of a sudden, wow, we've got a million new jobs for people and wages are going to skyrocket because we need people to fill those jobs. No. In fact, the economy is just tanking is what's actually happening. And by the way, our producer flag this for me, some some breaking news. Uh, it says the NYPD has created two full-time posts in Bogota, Colombia, and Tucson, Arizona, now expanding their list of foreign outposts uh, to 16. The New York City Police Foundation uh, pays for these deployments. What do you make of the NYPD um, branching out around the world like this? New York City Police Foundation is a pretty reactionary kind of right-wing civil organization. So this is probably some kind of political stunt as well. So yeah, I mean, I, I want to underscore your last point just really quickly. You talked about the opposite effect. We, I, I was saying how um, migrants actually have typically a positive or almost like a, a net neutral effect on the economy. The opposite is also true. When you deport migrants, it has a negative effect on the economy, even in times of extreme economic hardship. There's a number of studies done um, after the in, in the years subsequent to the Great Depression, where after they passed the Mexican Repatriation Act, and the places they were deporting people from actually suffered higher unemployment than elsewhere in the country, wage loss, and um, just a, a myriad of of other issues because they didn't have workers. About the NYPD, you know, it sounds to me like a um, <laughs> a exercise in futility. I don't know what one law enforcement officer is going to do in Tucson. Um, Tucson is not suffering from high crime rates because of migrants. Um, you can look at a host of studies and examples um, in the United States and throughout the world of migrant communities being safer, um, less crime, 
less violent crime. There are, of course, outlying exceptions to that, but um, that is true the world over. Um, you know, some people are going to cause harm, and, and that is actually um, less the case in immigrant scenarios or immigrant populations, but not impossible to find. Um, so I, I don't know what they're going to do. Um, you know, they could embed with the Border Patrol, and, and the Border Patrol here, mostly what they're doing is saying hi to people, telling them to take off their belts and their shoelaces, looking at their documents, and putting them in a van. That is the majority of Border Patrol agents work these days. Um, most of the people, the overwhelming majority of the people who are crossing the border are doing so to turn themselves into the Border Patrol. They're not in these high-speed pursuits or running through the desert. So if NYPD wants to you know, pick up a backpack of, of a mother and um, put it in the back of a van, Border Patrol does need more folks to, to help with that, that kind of work. But I, I don't know what else they're going to really be doing here. Well, maybe this can be your next uh, freelance piece uh, for The Intercept. Yeah, sounds interesting. Um, but uh, John, best of luck with the, uh, with the book launch. Um, again, uh, that was John Washington, a staff reporter for Arizona Luminaria and a contributor to The Intercept. His new book, The Case for Open Borders, is available February 6th, but pre-orders are ready now. Deconstructed is a production of The Intercept. Jose Olivares is our lead producer. Our supervising producer is Laura Flynn. The show is mixed by William Stanton. Legal review by David Braylow, Sean Musgrave, and Elizabeth Sanchez. So don't even think about suing this one. Leonardo Fireman transcribed this episode. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Roger Hodge is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Ryan Grimm, DC Bureau Chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash give. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. And please go and leave us a rating or a review. It helps people find the show. If you want to give us additional feedback, email us at podcast at theintercept.com or at ryan.grim at theintercept.com. Put deconstructed in the subject line, please. All right. I'll see you soon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.